Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast, where we cover everything from crypto finance to global macro. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. This will be our last episode in the first season of Crypto Unstacked. On behalf of the team at Amber Group, thank you guys so much for your support this past year and spending time with us week after week as we bring you new episodes with top experts in the industry. If you haven't already done so, please follow and subscribe to the podcast on your preferred podcast platform so you can be notified immediately when new episodes drop. Again, appreciate you being here with us. Happy New Year, everyone. Take care and stay healthy. This week, I chat with Maple Leaf Capital. For privacy reasons, we've agreed not to reveal his identity. But if you're on Twitter, you'll know that he has become a pretty big personality in crypto this past year and is known for publishing thoughtful reports on his outlook for crypto and specifically DeFi. In this episode, we talk about his most recent report on the Web3 stack. We discuss his macro views on the crypto industry, starting with an exploration of what he calls the emerging value nets, and chat about his thoughts on Web3 trends, everything from layer one agnostic tools and bridging real world applications to DeFi liquidity, to smart contract insurance and B2B Wall Street API like aggregators. Stay tuned till the end to hear what he thinks are category leading coins and his top two predictions for 2021. As always, thanks so much for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Maple Leaf Capital, welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's so great to have you on the show. Leslie, thanks for having me. You recently released a monster DeFi investor report on Twitter, which we're going to attempt to go through today. I spent a lot of time reading through all the pages. We have a lot to cover. So if you're okay, let's dive straight in. Let's do it. I, by the way, thank you for reading it. <laughs> I'm really appreciative. This report is titled Web3 Thematic, the Emerging Value Net and Wall Street API. And this primer is broadly split into two parts. For our audience, the first part talks about the emerging value nets in a world where we are seeing increasingly cheaper mechanisms of value transfer. And the second part focuses more on Maple Leaf's thoughts and outlook around specific DeFi projects, as well as the current DeFi infrastructure. And he also introduces the concept of Wall Street API aggregators. So there's a lot to unpack. So let's go through your deck accordingly so our audience can follow along if they wish. So let's begin by talking about the emerging value net. Can you define what a value net is for us? Yes, it's a pretty broad concept. I think if you were to look back on the uh, internet or the information net back in the uh, you know 1990s when it was first burgeoning, for the first time ever, you have a rather frictionless transfer of bytes of information, right? Through you know the ADSL cable, through the fiber networks. I think when you look back to the 1995s, you would look at the internet when it happened uh, on a local level and say, well, I wonder what would happen if information can be transferred costlessly to us in anywhere, anytime, whenever we want it. And I do wonder what kind of new business models or what can we do in that situation? And as, as we know, as we fast forward, when the 5G technology, uh, when the semiconductor you know, industry upgraded to 
a certain phase, uh, we start having really impressive and, and burgeoning ecosystem of businesses that came up with Facebook, with Google, with Uber, that sort of really made our lives a lot better and made our lives the way it is today, all thanks to sort of this seamless transfer of information. And, and if you really look back in history, every leap and when it comes to information, as the cost decreases over time, uh, whether it's the printing press, the typewriter, or television, telephone, every time when that happened, we are better off in a way where new businesses emerge and a new frontier of TAM you know, leap into reality. Now, b- back to the value net concept, information, they are sort of copy and pasted in the world of the internet, where you're replicating the information from one space at one time to another space at another time, whereby through value net and how I define it is, well, you, now it can be cut and pasted. And I mean cut and pasted, you know, guaranteed by a token and a consensus mechanism that guarantees it does not exist anymore once you cut and paste it elsewhere. And, and that concept is pretty new. I sort of feel like, well, if that's built to maturity, right, if we think about the future that's 20 to 30 years hence, we can imagine a world where value or information that's cut and pasted can be transferred rather frictionlessly globally through space and time. And we are sort of imagining a network of value, so to speak, that is sort of transcended between people and people, people and machines, machine and machines, and without geographic borders and with potentially extreme complexity that cannot be found today. And in that world, I sort of feel like new business models, just like the internet, what the internet brought to the world, you know, new business models, new TAMs will also leap into reality, just like the internet empowered the Facebook, Google, Ubers of the world, but in this new sort of, on this new value net that we can't even fan from today. And it's all empowered by sort of this game theoretic guarantee that the sort of blockchain technology enabled. Right. So we're seeing cheaper forms of value transfers right now, which, as you just mentioned, are made possible by these game theoretic guarantees, which is a phrase coined by uh, Chris Dixon, partner at A16Z. Can you talk through what a game theoretic guarantee is and how that compares to the legacy recourse deterring guarantees that you talk about with respect to costs, right? Yeah. Costs of information reach and information richness. Yeah. But in this sense, when we're talking about crypto networks, it's not so much information. It's more about the monetary value. Yeah, it's a very it's a very specific kind of information, right? It's a, it's a line item in a ledger that encapsulates what do I owe you or sort of who owes what? If you look really look at our world today, how that line item is logged and tallied is, well, let's say, Leslie, you and I, we both have money in the bank and we are effectively trusting the bank in keeping a very solid record of monetary line item of us. My, my money in the checking account, you know, like say $10,000, is really just, uh, really just an entry in the JP Morgan Chase or sort of the Citibank's ledger. And the truth is, you know, we are really trusting the current legal construct and the full recourse enforcing capability of the US government to say that, oh, well, if JP Morgan Chase uh, doesn't honor my agreement, you know, the, the, that, that line item on the balance sheet, or if there is a, a misappropriation of that line item, like if, if money gets siphoned out, 
there is a full force of the of the violent state machine to go after those violations. And whoever violates this pretty fine rules of uh, value exchange, they could be doxxed, they could be hurt, they could be thrown in jail. So in the world today, you know, through this third party centralized ledger, we are really relying on the honoring of property rights enforced by state actors reappropriated via taxes to, to allow for this kind of value transfer, right? And, and that applies to Venmo, that applies to PayPal to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So that, that's the world we live in today. And if you really look at the cost of doing business in that world, it's almost two states, right? Well, you can really break the function down to two pieces. One is, you know, what's the infrastructure cost, the electricity, the servers, and that cost is pretty small. That cost the banks of the world can eat because with leverage and scale, they can, they can eat that no problem. They can generate the profit elsewhere. And, and the two states are either you are a law-abiding actor, right? Everybody's KYC, everybody's fully compliant. There's really no cost of recourse in, in a sense. There are, there are no lawyers that be, are being sent your way. There are no like troops or policemen that are here to arrest you. There's really no cost associated with it. But to the extent that there is a violation of source where recourse is needed, there is significant cost associated with it in the sort of sausage making of the legal process, whether it's lawyers, documents, the whole sort of violent body, there's a huge cost associated with it. And, and the banks know that, and anybody that maintains a centralized ledger knows that. So then the question becomes, what is the expected value of those two sort of states balanced together? And how, how is that shouldered on a uh, per user basis? And if we look at that blended average, well, in the world where the cost of trust is low, like U.S. citizen to U.S. citizen, well, the cost is really rather frictionless because most people are law abiding and even the recourse because it's within one country, it could be relatively cheap. And a lot of times, you know, people just really fe- are fearful of the U.S. government's enforcement power so they remain law abiding. Uh, but even then, the lawyers are very expensive here. So, but, but, but in that case, you know, like in the, in the world of Venmo and JP Morgan, the cost is rather frictionless, right? It's, it's really cheap to transfer value. In the rest of the world, or if you're, if you're imagining, if you're operating outside the confines of the U.S. or outside of the confines of just within the same well-knitted system, the cost of recourse could be significant. And sometimes it might not even be enforceable. So to balance out that cost function, the centralized ledgers today may not even offer it or offer it in very limited capacity to the most wealthy of the world. Now, if you enter the game sort of theoretic guarantee, what that is, is instead of levying the trust and the sort of execution of this transaction to the centralized actors, such as the bank or the government, you are now entrusting the execution of this transaction to potentially thousands or hundreds of servers or tens of thousands of servers globally through a a game, a mechanism that uses a token to incentivize these nodes and actors to cooperate and do no evil. So in that sense, the token is the cost of this transaction. You are paying that token and the token is being paid to the nodes to process your transaction uh, whereby you know they will not get the token or they will lose they will lose quite a bit depending on the mechanism if they're not playing the game and executing your transaction the right way 
So that, that's why that's why I call it that's why Chris Dixon called it game theoretic because there's no centralized body organizing this. There's no you know physical recourse with real life costs associated with sort of cutting down uh, uh, you know people who violate the transactions. But it's it's all through a very open sort of market priced uh, ticket cost that is represented through a token, um, and that's a very you know, if you really think of it that way, it's it's a really new way of which value is transferred. You know, instead of a very hidden cost and a state-based cost in the real world, now it's really, uh, you kind of really know what it costs you to transfer value. And, and if you trust the nodes enough, if you trust the mechanism enough, you're almost guaranteed that, that this thing will go through. And there, there's really no need for trusting any centralized party of executing it for you. Yeah, following along your line of thought there, you have a framework, right, to think about all of these different value nets, different types of value yeah. transfers. And in this report, you talk about three of them. The first, which is open, permissionless value nets like Ethereum. The second is you know, open, permissioned value nets like Libra, or no, yeah. Diem. And yeah. the third is <laughs> closed, permissioned value nets such as central bank digital currencies. And you go through in great detail in the deck about, you know, the pros and cons for each. So I won't make you go through them point by point, but help us summarize your outlook for these various value nets. Which do you think will have more of an edge and network effect? And what structure do you think will win out going forward? Yeah, it's a tough question to answer. And by the way, for the listeners, the difference is really who the nodes are, right? Who, who are there to process these transactions? And when it's permission, it's also where you need approval to use it. So, so here's what's fascinating. I think the defining characteristic of these three can be summarized below. For the closed permission networks, such as central bank digital currencies, they could be throwing their full force of legal enforcement behind it and recourse behind it. So, so I think from day one, you are going to have a strong recourse backing to whatever transaction you do on that network. And you could see that having pretty immediate real-life applications that may or may not be forced upon their citizens. And I, I suspect that, you know, especially in China, some of these transactions would be monitored. And at the same time, like, you know, if you're a merchant and if you're really law-abiding, you might actually want to operate on it because in day one, there's like troops behind, you know, what you do. Uh, uh, so if you're like a DeFi protocol, if you're a business operating onto it, the vector of which you can explore sort of linking your product and your, your sort of work to real life much more uh, significant and much faster than the other networks, right? You, you can now enable a service which really links to our day-to-day, -day, you know? Mm -hmm. you, you can be selling, you know, buns on, on the street and you can just use this network because everybody's sort of KYC. You really know that the other person in fiscal life, if you do fiscal business, like you'll be okay. You can you can really trust that because if they, if they violate the law, the government can actually go after them. Um, so I think that will be a pretty defining characteristic of the sort of closed permission network. That's the CBDC. Um, and what kind of business emerge from it? I think it'll be it'll be more fiscal in nature, uh, and it touches real life almost immediately today. Um, when it comes to the sort of liberals of the world, I think the benefit there is that you have, you know, immediate day one uh, reach to billions of customers. It, it is as if you have the Facebook Messenger app or uh, the WeChat app 
you know, you, you would immediately have a uh, Swiss bank in your bank account. And the, 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 the merchants that are onboarded with, you know, Facebook of the world can immediately turn on and then latch on this value net, you know, with access to billions of users. Um, th that's obviously very powerful. You know, I think they can, what, what that would enable is, you know, I think it will be trivial to fork all of the DeFi primitives onto this sort of open permissioned uh, network. And you're going to see extreme day one proliferation potentially of, uh, of, you know, just, you know, physical driven businesses. Uh, could it be ads? Could it be selling things on, you know, like spot Shopify of the world? And you're sort of trusting the credit of Google and the nodes that operate on, uh, on, on the network of, you know, Google and Facebook to sort of enforce these kind of, you know, like violations on a digital network. Um, so, so the, the, the benefit there is like immediate day one reach, uh, and, and probably immediate sort of fis uh, uh, digital world business applications. And that'll be pretty interesting. I think it's going to drive a lot of adoption and it, they're like sort of one step away from using ETH or, or the sort of open permissionless networks. And, and to the last facet, I think, I think this is, that, that's like the wild west, you know, like the ETH of the world. I think the characteristic there is you're going to see um, a black hole of talent and capital from the other two networks. And there are two things. There, there's nothing you can't do, right? And because of the liquidity that's sloshing the system, I think I think that the enterprise value and the value being assigned to per lines of code, it's the highest I've ever seen in, in any industry. If you're an entrepreneur, there's really no better place to raise capital and start a business in, in the sort of open permissionless network today. The new initiatives that and the new primitives you can play with is just tremendous. So I think this is going to be a test bed for a lot of the new arcane, interesting startup concepts that use money uh, and value as like one of the foundational building block. And you're gonna have tremendous and extreme experiments. I think this is where the really new Web3 primitives and businesses are gonna be born. Absolutely. You know, it's within these open permissionless networks that we're seeing a ton of experimentation, right? And you have a particular lean towards picks and shovels businesses, as you call them. And I think that's very important to define kind of early on because it gives us an insight as to how you value all of these different projects within the space, because I, I feel like each investor has a fairly different framework approaching specific yeah. projects, right? So can you define picks and shovels for us and what kind of competitive advantages these types of businesses possess? You know, maybe you can give us an example of one of the ones that you have the most conviction in currently. Yeah. Um... I think an easy way to, to approach it, it's sort of a catch-all phrase, uh, you, you know, like picks and shovels. I view it more as um, a layer one agnostic tool that helps us do stuff. And whether it's, you know, help us uh, retrieve data better or, you know, whether it's a collaboration platform, a, a tool to help jobs being done, or whether it's, uh, you know, a developing environment that facilitates building, you know, in this space. And the reason I like it is because, you know, Leslie, like, I think anybody that come from first principle would probably agree that in 20 or 30 years, um, value will maybe just transfer like the way information is, you know, I, I, we, we may not have a, you know, phone at that point, it might be in our brain, but uh, <laughs> it, like, it, 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 it seemed rather evident that value would be transferred like information, right? It, it will be somewhat borderless, 
and uh, it will be very different primitive stem. I think what's really unclear is how we get there. And, and I, I'm especially skeptical still today that ETH plus the current DeFi iteration is the final iteration. Um, and, and if you place your bets too early into one ecosystem, uh, it could die a horrible death as uh, you know, new protocols or new initiatives leapfrog you. But, but I feel like uh, a cop-out way to play that trend towards the final destiny is uh, buying into tools and sh picks and shovels in this case that will not expire. Uh, they are layer one agnostic, they are chain agnostic. And as long as the mm. use case is solid, um, and, and you know they will always retain a seat at the table. And, and, the, and the best thing about them also is, is twofold. Usually these businesses are SaaS businesses that can be valued on a traditional EV to ARR framework, uh, which means A, they can be valued with equity. And two is if the space really works, they are prime takeout targets by the traditional players. So you have the exit, you have a framework evaluation, and you have almost like a timeless usage of these kind of products, which makes it a really sort of good low beta, but pretty good sharp play into the space. I think things I really like, I think a, a variation of on-chain analytics could be very, very good. And, and I listed a few examples, you know, like chain analysis, that is really a 2G, a two-government consulting firm, kind of. And there's like Nansen, which is, for those who are not familiar, if you are a DGEN who is looking to sort of speculate on DeFi coins, Nansen helps you sort of really trace to a very granular level on what investors typically look for, uh, like whales, wallets, how to fund flows, and so on and so forth. But then there is also players like Glassnode or Skew or Dune Analytics that sort of all cut the on-chain data on ETH in certain ways that provides insights to sort of whoever used them. And whether it's to business, whether it's to customer, whether it's government, I think this kind of business will always be relevant. And it would be especially relevant if you believe in a potentially multi-chain, multi-network, multi-value network world, especially when you potentially also get into proprietary data and sort of potentially not composable, fragmented data, data maps, right? Some of the data could be sitting on just this sort of bridging nodes. Some of them could be, you know, more permissions you need like KYC to access them. And in that world, if you're a data vendor, if you're a data analytics vendor to have access to all of these, you have proprietary data sets, you have proprietary analytics tools, um, you could be selling the data out in ABCD ways to government, to business, to customers. I bet you if the business becomes really big, government especially would want a slice of that just for tax dollars. So you, you kind of already have a, a revenue stream that way. And once you have these captive customer business and governments, the ability to cross-sell them on other type of services, whether it's through taxes, whether it's through potential simulation on, let, let's say, helping business build projects, or the application is pretty endless. And it all starts with just having the data and analyzing them. So I thought I thought that that's a space I have really high conviction on. I don't think I have access to the chain analysis deal personally, but that some some business like that I, I will sort of really look into and back any day, uh, as long as they're good. Yeah, you talked about how the current iteration of DeFi is definitely not going to be the end all be all, right? There's going to be many more iterations going forward. Are you yeah. seeing so called blue chip type? DeFi projects that you think are building this sort of new capital stack, whether they be you know a horizontal capital stack or vertical capital stack, what what types of projects 
can you talk about that are already seeing these types of things happening? Yeah, um, it, it's it's a it's a lot of questions. <laughs> let, let me try to break it down in pieces. So first of all, uh, the, the funny thing is, I think people start talking about the blue chips. I think it, it started off as a joke because <laughs> the, the logos are the logos are blue and chips are token. So it's like a natural, it's like a natural meme in a way. I, I'm I'm it's kind of funny it caught on. It's fascinating, right? So so let me break it down to two ways. Number one, in the crypto world today, it's very different of how this finance stack formed versus the real world. In the real world, you have business exchanges first. You have a real application first. And then you need finance to to like service you, right? The finance is like the mother and the lubricant of all businesses. And they're not there to create value. They're there to siphon value left and right. They are the multiplier to the additions and subtractions of businesses. In crypto, in DeFi, it's it's the other way around. There's really no application whatsoever today. Or, or you can argue, well, it's really the core application today is gambling and speculation. And DeFi sort of emerged out of the layer one to service that demand. I think for DeFi to really take it to the next level, it needs to migrate beyond just speculation and gambling. And it needs to serve as a foundational stack that services you know, real potential business applications, just like the way Wall Street serves a Fortune 500 company today. Or, or you, can, you can argue if, if it's even serving them or leeching off of them. I think when it comes to pushing the frontier on how that may happen, I think one valid attempt uh, which I think the firms like Aave or Compound is doing, is really sort of trying to bridge the gap between uh, the real world today and, and you know, bring them onto crypto. And it, it could exist in one or two ways. It could either, um, you know, by, by uh, working with uh, centralized uh, actors, you know, whether it's BlockFi or Con- Coinbase or whatever, and effectively allowing customers or businesses in real life to tap into the high interest or high cost of capital that is offered by the global degen liquidity that exists today. Um, or it could exist in the form of, you know, uh, funding potential businesses that need this kind of financing in the real world. Now, the, the, sec- the second case may be harder because, you know, no, no business in the real world can support a you know 15 percent type of cost of capital but but it's a very valid attempt that they're doing and i think it might still take a few iterations and and these existing DeFi protocols they're going to start opening up branches and other layer ones but i'm i'm pretty hopeful that this wall street api this sort of you know financing layer ultimately they would allow any businesses or individuals just by merely connecting to it access to global liquidity in and out and, and global liquidity being people's capital liquidity anywhere. And it could even be very complicated versus just borrowing and lending. It could be in the forms of equity financing. It could be the form of tranching out different parts of your cap stack. It could get pretty fancy, pretty complicated, pretty fast. And we're just building that out today. Yeah, we're definitely going to unpack that towards the end of our conversation. So we'll put a pause on that. But to kind of dovetail <laughs> what you just said, though, right? Wi-Fi, I feel like, is one of these aggregators that's really taking the form of a conglomerate, for lack of a better word, <laughs> right now. I yeah. think that's that's fairly strong. But you know, I, I read a piece recently that likened a Wi-Fi to an Amazon. Right? It's a very interesting case mm. study where right now trying to figure out what Wi-Fi exactly is. You know, is it as you say? becoming more of a holding company ecosystem? And if so, do you see the competitive edge 
increasing or decreasing because of exponentially more attack vectors as Wi-Fi starts to partner yeah. with all these other projects in the space. Yeah, uh, a, a lot to unpack there. When it comes to Alliance, I think um, I think what Andrew realized pretty early is that in the space today, that's very, very nascent. What is your competitive advantage? And it's not capital. It is the community that helps you iterate fast enough and it is the strong programmers that help you iterate your projects to product market fit faster. And by the way, just, just taking a step back, in finance, there's really no, there's like very little competitive advantage or lasting mode, right? Like your bank is similar to my bank and and your real mode is maybe some customer relationship or whatever, but but it's, it's all really pretty fungible. They all look the same, right? That one bankers look similar to the other. DeFi, it's interesting. Like with any new industry, you go through this phase of, a thousand flowers bloom and then consolidation and then new actors emerge from that consolidation that does very niche use cases then they do it better and better and because the incumbents are so you know fat and lazy and slow um i think in DeFi we're in that sort of first phase where everything starts off really, really fragmented and the tam is like rapidly expanding so so in that world your only competitive advantage is that you move fast faster than everybody else and then you have a community that guides you on what product market fit is so, so in that sense, I think what Andre is doing is that he is, and by the way, like M&A is a strong word people use. It's not, it's not M&A whatsoever. It, I think it's more like JV or like partnership or acquire. He's sort of building brain, brain talent within his own ecosystem where the friction of collaboration and the friction of integrating different protocols together uh, just drops when you have this kind of formal or, un, or informal word of allegiance. It's almost like a horde in a way, right? It's not like a, like a great, you know, um, a Chinese empire, but it's more like the Mongolian horde where different fashions come together and they kind of work together. It's all right. I think you can't force programmers to do anything because they just walk and they might be the best way to go about it. I think what's really cool is that when programmers get free reign like this and they get sort of massive collaboration amongst each other, something really cool can come out of it. And, and you can almost dog food your new projects immediately within this ecosystem. And a good example is sushi. Like, how does sushi eclipse Uniswap? I think one of the key ways is that, you know, the best DGEN coins come out of this Andre ecosystem and uh, have sushi LP immediately from day one. And that's where all of the DGENs want to gamble. So if you do that enough times, your TVL from sushi could actually eclipse, you know, Uniswap. Uh, and before you know it, you flip the network effect. So that's kind of how I view it. I think there's issues with it because, like I said, programmers can just hop anywhere and the talent is, you know, super fluid. So if if there's a day where the Wi-Fi token value sort of breaks or, you know, if the programmers feel like they're better off elsewhere and Andre is like, you know, just trading trading shitcoin all day and he's not doing work uh, or Andre kind of just get bored and, and move on and stop building, the whole alliance can crumble pretty quickly. I don't think we're there yet. I think I think they're still very on top of things and, and really iterating fast. But I think I think this is like a transient phase of the DeFi evolution where I think Andre and the ecosystem just figured out like I think this is the most efficient way to keep building. So in your mind, these recent JVs are net positive despite the challenges, basically, for now. Yeah, for for now. For now. And and I think the biggest issue is like I said before. If you're a programmer and you're good, um, the EV to per line of code being thrown at you is uh, ridiculous, right? So why would I work as a core protocol engineer for Wi-Fi 
or why would I work as a core product engineer for sushi when Wi-Fi doesn't compensate me through inflation or any way, shape or form, and I'm getting underpaid by, you know, uh, Maki on sushi, right? I might try to go out and strike my own. But if I do that with the alliance that's formed with Andre and, and these guys, I might be better off allowing them, A, in my cap stack in day one, and B, actually work together with them very closely. Because I can not only day one dog food all these protocols that's already there, and by the way, they will help me to integrate, but B, I can leverage the cloud and just get day one buy-in from the community immediately. So I think the JV forms through a benefit that way. It's, it's almost like you want to retain your talent, hopefully, through one way or another, and by the virtue of the things I mentioned, and sort of not lose them to other protocols like you know Uniswap or Compound. Yeah, this is actually a nice segue into another topic I wanted to chat with you about, which is smart contract insurance, which has a huge design surface, right? And one of these protocols is Cover, right? And as we all know, yeah, <laughs> very, very timely. Um, you know, they suffered a hack, and long story short, basically the developers within the Urine ecosystem all came together to try to patch this fix. And I guess that goes to what you just said, which is the collaboration aspect is more around the talent than anything else, right? Yeah, yes. That, that, that's the only defensible mode to you at the moment. Like eventually, if the space becomes a thousand X bigger, right? Like, and, and all these DeFi primitives get built out to maturity, it's going to look very similar to banks, I think. Like you can have huge financial conglomerates that do all everything uh well and they all compete against each other and and, and that, like they're pretty it's pretty commoditized but since we're so early the space is not matured you're like sprinting to the end point and if you're running faster than the next guy you have like a huge edge and how do you realize it is the community that helps you iterate in product market fit and then the sort of the programmer base you have that sort of help you 100x mm -hmm. is cover the closest contender to having all of the elements you describe for what makes a robust smart contract insurance protocol. Um, and, and I'll name a few points here. Um, one is having a partial reserve, having market-based pricing of premiums, having flexible maturity, you know, having a good token incentive design. Can you talk about like where cover meets these requirements and where there's room for improvement? Yeah, um, it's obviously awkward time to talk about it because <laughs> it kind of just blew up, unfortunately. But what, what I would say is them blowing up, uh, it does not impact the, to the, the sort of underlying fundamental principle and design of, of how they want to run insurance. Um, I think, um, so one thing I would say is, uh, so let, let's take through the boxes, right? I, I think they still have a lot of wood to chop. And similarly with Nexus as well. Um, with, with Cover, uh, it is incredibly capital inefficient at the moment. One dollar deposit into capital base cannot be underwriting claim tokens or not, not no claim tokens elsewhere. And when the token inflation runs out, it's gonna they're gonna be in a pickle. So they will need to figure out a way to uh, improve capital inefficiency in the capital pool. And it could be sort of using the no claim token or claim token as collateral in other capital pools, for example. They have to introduce leverage to the system. I think there is still a lot to be done today 
on generating yield on the capital pool that's deposited, right? But you have to really think into sort of the reserve requirement on meeting redemptions. I think that's still work to be done. You know, when it comes to market-based pricing, I think it works really well. I think the BPT balancer-based system allows for a generally pretty good, you know, indication of the implied default risk. Although I would say if there's a lower cost of, like in terms of gas fee, right, lower cost way of doing it, uh, it would be even better. And when it comes to time flexibility, what I what I think I I think people in the space really wants for product market fit today is, you know, I want like one hour cover, or I want twenty four hour cover. You know, I I want to just ape into a protocol and be only cover for two hours, and then I'm I'm out, and I'm happy to pay a very big premium for that. I don't know how they can get there, but if you get there, you want to you want to really be careful about not fragmenting your liquidity too much. So that's like a trade off there. And then lastly, through point of sale, I think that that's a that's a trickier issue to solve because you have to really be deeply integrated with these protocols, or you don't do that and you just go to aggregators and have them with you as a, as a one step option. But I I think I think nobody solves this sort of time flexibility and the point of sale sort of business development side yet. Um, and, um, and and the last thing I would say about cover is I, I, I do feel like, you know, uh, they do have to figure out a way for, for the token inflation to be worked on where the protocol is long-term viable because you can't just keep incentivizing your capital put over the longer term. But I, I think it's, it's all solvable if you like really think hard at it in, over the next six months. I, I don't think today there's like a, a, a strong insurance protocol yet that solve all of these problems. Um, I, I actually, I'm actually warming up to Nexus, um, not only because you, you can see Jeff talking about on, on, on Twitter, like it's not only because it's kind of trading at book value, uh, but, but also that um, just, just for example, I think, you know, them branching into the custody insurance is a really neat it's a really neat, uh, you know, introduction of orthogonal risk to the system. Um, and, and I think Hugh is making tremendous strides, you know, even today, trying to trying to fix some of the problems that we talked about, um, especially on point of sale. And, and how do you sort of increase the yield and how do you like really choose the leverage within their system? I, I really wish they could sort of introduce a way to allow for a capital pool that's not NXM sort of native. I think that'll be I think that'll be a really good addition in whatever way to introduce it. Yeah, I feel like one of the main problems in the smart contract insurance market today is really this over collateralization of capital, right? And yeah. there's another project called uh, Union that is trying to solve for this and allowing parties to underwrite specific parts of the risk, so basically like tranching out the, that risk stack and offering yeah. that out to buyers of the insurance, does that get closer to insurance flexibility that you talked about? Um, so, so two parts. The, the one is how do you introduce leverage to the capital pool? And two, what kind of exploration can we do on uh, the risk side, right? I think on the second part, like the tranching of risk, you either you can either share the pool with somebody or you can have junior or senior tranche, like you say. I think those are really good features to be had. But but I, I, I somehow feel like that's a pretty advanced feature. Uh, and, 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 and by the way, it is a feature, not a product. Like Nexus, I, I wouldn't say it's trivial, but it's like pretty doable if you really want to put his mind to it, right? I, I think the harder part is business development. It's like getting this capital pool large enough. It's getting buy-in from people trusting it. So, so Union, I, I'll take a look at it. I haven't come across it, but my hunch is this is like too advanced 
for the space today. And if it does become, you know, real enough, uh, Nexus would just copy it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> at least that's fine. In, in terms of introducing leverage, it, it's almost like a, you're selling a out of money put option that like earns you like 50 bips a year and you're putting up the whole collateral behind it, you know, ready, like, or, or the off the exchange, re, you know, requiring you to do that. That's obviously not very sweet because, you know, it, it's a capital efficiency is low. What they do is, okay, well, you put up more collateral as the price of the underlying gets closer and closer to your strike price. Um, you know, maybe that is one way to solve it. I think Nexus solved it a different way, which is we have this kind of proprietary pricer that fluctuates somewhat with market supply and demand in the staking. Uh, well, really just supply of, of, of cover. And then you can stake your cover like 10 times, right? And, and, by, and by, by playing into this confine uh, and design, right? And it, it, you, you have to, you know, use NXM to play uh, you're sort of, uh, you sort of agree by our way of pricing the the the, the cover, as well as you're 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 okay with the sort of leverage that's embedded in the system. I think that those two ways could both work. It's either you sort of almost trick the buyers of cover in a way, believing that okay, the partial reserve is okay, right? Which is kind of what Nexus is doing, or you sort of do a cascading, almost like bitmax liquidation type of partial reserve system for this sort of uh, uh, capital pool. And I think that the exploration on the second part is is TBD. But I'm, I'm looking forward to somebody trying it. So I want to pivot now to talking about the Wall Street API, you know, B2B uh, aggregator model that you briefly mentioned earlier. A lot of the DeFi projects that we see in the space today cater more to C, so meaning to consumer yes. rather than to B, right? Meaning to businesses. And you've tweeted that, and I'm quoting you here, <laughs> protocols need clean roadmaps for both 2C and 2B. 2C is a solid interface for all key functions a degen yeah. <laughs> may need, assuming trading isn't intermediated. And 2B is business development for proof of stake, as well as best uh, algo slash optimization for aggregators. Yeah. Um, can you unpack that statement for us? Yes. Um... And let me also segment into two pieces. For, for that tweet, I'm specifically talking about the AMM, Automatic Market Maker, or the decentralized exchange battle that's heating up. And the, the, the slide in deck sort of talks about a Wall Street API aggregator. I think that talks more about, let, let me just really quickly on that first, because I think that's an easier conversation. Uh, it's a more advanced aggregation where eventually when the businesses do come on top of the DeFi and layer one, um, it might be, and at that point, there will be a huge proliferation of, you know, applications, DeFi applications that already exist. I think somebody needs to come together and offer that as a neat, you know, uh, uh, package for um, for the businesses to use. Uh, if if I'm just like selling buns, I, I and I want to access Wall Street API, I, it might I might be better off just going to one vendor that offers everything to me. And they do all the dirty work of integration and sniffing out new protocol and routing and whatever. And I just need to like talk to one vendor. That, that's obviously very advanced and we're, we're far out from that, but I think that's going to happen. Um, and, and investing in that aggregator because they own the business relationship could be a winner. Back to your point about the tweet. So there are probably more than 10 decentralized exchanges that are out there and not just exchanges, but also aggregators 
right? And and the best ones being Uniswap and One Inch. I think their boundaries are going to blur. First of all, they they service two types of customers. There is the people like you and me who just want to uh, ape into a altcoin, and and you you sort of go to Uniswap as default because we're lazy, or we go to One Inch because we are more uh, cost conscious and want to compare different prices. Uh, and then secondly, there's the to be, which is you know like Coinbase buying a coin, or you know I'm I'm a prop shop and I want to get linked directly to liquidity, and and One Inch or you know something to service it. It seems very likely to me that aggregators will start having their own private pools, similar to Uniswap, and the Uniswaps would have their own built-in aggregator function that routes orders. And the reason I say that is because traffic and customer attention is scarce, just like it is in the Web2 world. When you have a customer through all work landed on your page or working with you for that order, you, you kind of want to win that order <laughs> and, and you do whatever it takes to win that order. You don't want them to go to one inch or you don't want to go to Uniswap as a second option. You kind of want to just do it right there. So so it seems very natural to me that, um, oh, like if, if you have if you have both private pools and aggregators, when a user lands on your page, they can just do it one step. To do that well, you sort of need some pretty advanced features. Is, is that one, you do need to integrate, if, if you're a DEX, you need two things. Is that one, you should really be doing a better job of serving your, your DGEN customers, i.e. they shouldn't be opening DAX tools, Nansen, you know, like Etherscan and everything in different places and different tabs. They should really be able to do that on your page in one step. And by the way, like I want to, I want to, on Uniswap, I, I want to be able to sort of see the whale actions and have the cost spaces on the chart and so on and so forth. And maybe that's Uniswap Pro or something. Um, and and two is, and you're servicing the DGENs, right? And then two is, I think you want to, if you're a building aggregator, you want to have all these really deep optimization that you have with order routing, with like, you know, MEV uh, uh, prevention, with like, you know, preventing, you know, front running and so on and so forth. So it's, it's, a, it's, it's, very, and it's very, it's two very orthogonal sort of engineering type of requirements. But I think for a new burgeoning AMM, or aggregator to compete, they have to merge. And the barrier of entry is actually very high because you need all these kind of talent to build to full force. And whoever can't compete would just like probably die. You, you're probably going to see we going from 10 to 20 AMM plus aggregator down to like maybe one or two because they're just so good at doing all of the things we talked about. Above. Yeah, that's very interesting. Do you see these middleware aggregator players within this layer, do you think that's where the value will accrue in this Web3 stack? Um, I think it's TBD. I'm keeping my mind open. Mm. I, I, I don't know. If, if, I'm, if I'm using the Web2 uh, ethos, then the answer is a resounding yes. Because whoever owns the ultimate relationship has the most room to extract rent, but Web3 could be different. I, I don't know yet. Yeah, there was a panel, I think, that Hasib was moderating, Hasib from Dragonfly. He asked all of the panelists, who do you think will own the customer relationship in DeFi? Yeah. And that's like a very, very yeah. deep question because some people think, oh, it's the aggregators, but that's only if you think that model can't be sort of replicated to infinity, right? 
and have liquidity fragmented because there are so many aggregators out there that do effectively the same thing. Yeah, it's a trade-off between searching and integration cost and the sort of savings by going direct. You know, like any protocol, any user that want to do stuff, they are always balancing, is it worth it for me to, to just like spend the time and effort to integrate and search versus is this, is this cheaper? And same thing with project, like distribution costs versus like, you know, margin spread being given up. Um, I think it's pretty hard still yet today to answer that question when the supplier and customer and how this will look ultimately is unclear. Um, I'm keeping an open mind. I'm, I'm happy. I'm happy either way. Um, yeah, yeah, they'll have to be reassessed every uh, every quarter. Things move so quickly. I mean, I can't believe 2020 is Seriously. almost over, and Ave just launched in January, and it doesn't even feel like it because they reached what a billion dollars within six months. I mean, it's incredible how the space has grown this year. Yeah, seriously. So Maple Leaf, I would love to wrap up on a fun note here. You've mentioned a couple names in the report, some of them category leaders, which you say on the surface level can be defined as having a circulating market cap close to their diluted market cap. And you have a long list. Would you like to give your outlook on one of these coins? Yes. I'll give you two and I'll, I'll be quick. I think Sushi is very interesting in the pace at which to iterate and the hook points they're building and being the fastest, I think, today on realizing that sort of AMM aggregator vision that I talked about. Um, I think conglomerates are going to form very rapidly and whoever has to sort of develop her talent and the realization that's the in- inevitable interim future would do well. So... Uh, sushi in terms of its pace of iteration, as well as um, the market cap relative to uh, the the user base, uh, well, mostly whales, actually, uh, as well as the sort of, you know, volume traded and the sort of altcoin onboarding. I think uh, it, the future seems promising there versus the valuation. Um, and the other one, I think I can, I can you know, go by saying is, is Ave. I think... Uh, you know, a compound is actually super interesting and, and, and on them exploring that, you know, um, that that bridge where uh, that they're building. But but I think Aave is moving incredibly quickly on feature sets that people want, as well as working to bridge that having the real world tapping traditional, uh, sorry, uh, 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 sort of DGEN or DeFi uh, global liquidity. And if they're running the fastest and bridging that gap, they will be the first to extract significant rent in that process. And it's also a really easy coin for a traditional finance builder buy into. Uh, so I, I think those two I'm I'm pretty I'm pretty bullish on. I'm pretty excited about. And we'll end here with your top two predictions for 2021 because oh <laughs> I think our, our audience would love to hear your thoughts for what might happen, regardless if it will. So we won't hold you to it. But what are your top two predictions for next year when it comes to Web3 and, and DeFi? Yeah. I think layer two is going to come out with a bang and it could scale Ethereum to ways that we can't imagine today yet. I think it's going to be pretty awesome when it happens. Um, and, and I think composable composability there is going to be a solvable problem and you're going to have a really smooth experience. If you want to know what I mean, just try to get yourself an invite code to Dark Forest 
and uh, and I just play with that XDAI ecosystem. I think I think you kind of can see the future that way. Just like if it's really scalable and not sacrifice security, what, what it would look like. So I, I'm really I'm I'm pretty bullish there. And by the extension of that, if that future does happen, and and as these like other layer ones start happening, I think cross chain bridges and cross chain custodians would be a huge business. And it is a business orders of magnitude larger than what the market's giving it credit for today versus the ren and ruin of the world. And, and why I say that is because for L2 to L1, you would have time lags and the bridges are the natural actor to service that need, almost like a working capital sink, especially for optimism rollup. And even then, when you talk about DeFi on ETH, I mean, it's the lend- lending indexes. I, I don't see why the bridges like ruin or ren cannot service lending and borrowing function across chain. And, and the third thing is, if a custodian is trusted, like WBTC, it can really serve as the springboard for real-life assets you know, onboarded onto crypto. I mean, they, they're the most natural first actor to do that because they, they sort of cross all the chains and layer one, layer twos. So I think it's going to be a huge business. And, and it might be best served for uh, you know, a business that's a hybrid, that straddle the custody and, and sort of traditional world, as well as the sort of trustless permissionless world. Mm-hmm. So I think it's going to be a huge business. I'll be looking out for opportunities there. I think those are sort of views for for next year. Excellent. Maple Leaf Capital, thanks so much for hopping on the show and spending some time with us here. I look forward to reading your next report and (laughs) hope to bring you on again very soon. Thanks so much. Thank you so much. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group.